1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the Ark And they brought up the Ark of the Lord and the Tent of Meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the Ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's government to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. We're going to skip down to verse 22, the bottom of that column. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When a man wrongs his neighbour and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on his head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, 
And when they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of the afflictions of his own heart and spreading out his hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart. For you alone know the hearts of all men, so that they will fear you all the time they live in the land you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them and when they pray towards the Lord, towards this city you have chosen and the temple I've built for your name, Then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to their enemy, who takes them captive to his own land, far or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you towards the land you gave their fathers, towards the city you have chosen and the temple I've built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offences they've committed against you and cause their conquerors to show them mercy For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron-smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea, and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses, when you, O sovereign Lord, brought our fathers out of Egypt. Our second reading is in Hebrews, and we're in chapter 7 of Hebrews. We are reading from verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. 
He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. Good morning, good morning to you. We're in 1 Kings chapter 8, so uh, uh, do turn back to there that the uh, Hebrews may uh, illuminate a little bit, but uh, there we're spending our time. If we've not met uh, and had a chance to say hello, my name's Matt, Matt Fuller. I'm a a senior minister here. It'd be lovely to do so afterwards. Let me lead us in prayer before we look at 1 Kings 8. Our Father, here is a magnificent prayer that Solomon offers. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below, because you keep your promises, you keep your covenant of love. Father, as we consider this prayer this morning, would you send us away more convinced than ever, there is no God like you. And so we love you and obey you in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, here's quite a simple question with a slightly complicated answer. Here's a simple question. Where is God? A friend of mine is a lecturer at a theological college, and he said he was, he was a little bit humbled uh, a while back when his four-year-old said to him, Daddy, where is God? And he wasn't really engaged, and he said, oh, everywhere. God is everywhere. Why do we pray, our Father who art in heaven, if he's everywhere? And he said there was a sort of mixture of feelings at that moment. One, Smart boy. Uh, two, oh, that's, yeah. Um, how do I, exp- oh, uh, hmm. let me think about that and come back to you. Because actually, well, there's a very simple question. The answer has a certain amount of nuance to it. Where is God? We're unlikely to ask it in the same sort of, I don't know how you phrase it, existential fashion that a four-year-old might as a sort of philosophical question. But the skeptic will ask, well, where is your God? Where is God in this world if he exists? The believer might ask in times of distress, where is is God? Where are you? We ask it in slightly different ways, but where is God? And there's a sense in which that question is at the heart of uh, the passage today. Where is he? So we had these read at the beginning, but chapter 8, verse 27 Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. So we can't just say he lives in heaven. How much less this temple I've built. So we can't just say God lives in a temple. Nothing can contain him. He's everywhere. And yet, verse 28 Give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. So God is everywhere. And yet he's close enough to the believer to hear their prayer. This is a funny combination. I guess if you wanted to use the theological terms, you'd say God is transcendent. Above all, he's imminent. He's with us. In simple language, he's up there and he's down here. Or he reigns on high on a throne 
and yet he dwells with his people intimately. He's all of those. It's a very simple answer, really, to the question. Where is God? He's exalted in incomparable glory, yet he's with us in loving concern. He's both. Now, if you're joining us just for today, we're looking at the life of Solomon in 1 Kings, this book of 1 Kings. Now, half of the book is the life of Solomon, and half of Solomon's life is taken up with the construction and dedication of the temple. So it's clearly an important thing, this building. Last time, if you were here, we looked at chapters 5 to 7, the construction of the temple. And I think we found it a lot more interesting than we might have realized, looking at all these details of the building. But here in chapter 8, it actually comes to be dedicated. The ribbon is cut. Uh, as the king comes and actually cuts the ribbon and opens the temple for business. It's the high point of Solomon's life in this whole section, structurally 1 to 11. It all focuses in, really, on chapter 8. And sadly, it's all a bit downhill for Solomon from here. But this chapter, I think the heart of it is the prayer he prays. So if you like such things, I think it goes a bit like this, the structure. Oh, Oh, no, we've lost that. Uh, well, these are all nice. Uh, but I was looking for the little, the little structure. Have we got that one? No, it's gone. It's gone. Not to worry. But anyway, it goes a bit like this. There's celebration in verses 1 to 13. Solomon blesses Israel 14 to 21. Right at the heart, Solomon's prayer of dedication. Then he blesses, and then there's celebration. So it's like a sandwich effect. Uh, the, oh, there it is. Um, the, the, the prayer, uh, 22 to 53, is right uh, at the very center of things. That's how the chapter works. Uh, And yet I thought it's helpful to look at it this way. Where is God? Well, let's give three different answers to that that the chapter gives. He's hidden and revealed. He's up there and down here. He's distant and he's close. Okay. Where is God? He's those three sets, according to 1 Kings 8. Let's take them in turn then. Verses 1 to 13, really. He's hidden and he's revealed. Chapter 8 of verse 1. After seven years of building, and for us reading it, three pretty rigorous chapters of building rules and regulations, here's the payoff. It's party time. Chapter 8, verse 1. Seven years, or even for us, if you've read through chapters 5 to 7, we've earned it. We deserve a party. Here it is. Chapter 8, verse 1. King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem all the elders of Israel. All the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, why have they done that? They've done it to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. Everyone gathers. And the emphasis really is then, they're bringing up the ark of the covenant eight times in nine verses. The ark of the covenant. So um, familiar to most just purely from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But uh, let me just remind you, so here's the temple, there's the ark, there's the ark of books. What would it be? It's about four foot by two foot by two foot, something like that. A wooden box. No, keep, just... (laughs) That's it. No more. Um, There it is, the uh, uh, covering wooden box covered inside and outside with gold. And these two angels on top, sort of making a seat It represents God's throne. That's what it's meant to be. God's throne. And so it's taken, verse 6, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the central room of the temple, 
uh, that gets that Solomon has built. We saw this last time. The central room, the inner sanctuary, the most holy place. It's a cube built. Uh, it's all wood, extravagantly carved, and everything is covered, covered in gold. The point being, it's a throne room. And at the heart of the throne room is God's throne. But the contrast I want to look at, he's hidden and revealed, is really verses 9 downwards. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites out of, well, after they came from Egypt. Okay. When the priests had plonked the, uh, the ark, or delicately placed the ark in the most holy place, verse 10, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests couldn't perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Solomon said, the Lord has said he'll dwell in a dark cloud. Right. Somewhat unusual. So God's throne is placed in this magnificent room. The priests walk out, and then God's glory manifests as a cloud, enters, and no one can see anything. Well, that's perhaps a little disappointing. After all, seven years of construction to build a palace for a king, and now he moves in, and everyone else has to clear out. It doesn't quite work, but think of it this way. Uh, some friends of ours recently bought a, um, um, built a granny annex. They turned a garage uh, in, in their garden into a granny annex for granny to come and live. And it hassle and builders, and it, it took a good number of months, and 80,000 pounds or something spelt on, um, spent on granny annex. But imagine this didn't actually happen, but imagine granny moved in. Oh, at last, all the work is done and Granny moves in and she locks all the doors and pulls down the curtains and the blinds and shuts all the windows and says, keep out. What? Well, what? We've built this for you to live with us. Keep out. Now, you might at that point think, poor Granny, perhaps a little late that we've built this for her. But things become clearer if she says, keep out because... Well, because I've contracted Ebola, and I'm content now I'm going to die, and I just don't want anyone else to get it. Oh, okay. Okay, we will keep out. Thank you very much for the warning. And of course, that's somewhat of how the temple functions. God says, keep out. I dwell here, and for humans who are guilty and do things wrong and are not perfect to come before me who is perfect, destruction, death. So keep out, keep out. But they can't see him. But what they do get is in verse 9. They know, they know that what's on the two stone tablets. The Ten Commandments are on the stone tablets. So God is hidden. And you can't see him. And there's a sense of mystery. But he has given them his words. The Ten Commandments, just a summary of the Old Testament law. So he's hidden. You don't know everything, but he has told you what you need to know. He's hidden, but he's revealed. That's the point of this. And I guess so for you and for me, life is often confusing. We're bewildered what to do. We pray. God seems hidden. What do we do in these circumstances? I don't know. What I'm meant to, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, I've revealed what you need to know. So you can obey me. That often isn't the answer we want, is it? Let's be honest. In the confusion of life. 
you know, in the small things and the big things, as, you know, at the moment we're trying to work out where does our 10-year-old go to secondary school in London? You have extraordinary choice of 600 schools and no choice because you can't get into any of them. It's this bizarre London system. You know, oh, and what do you do? Where, where can we go? Oh, you can easily get wound up about it. But if you do your research, be wise, then say, but Lord, you don't tell me where our son needs to go to school. So it can't be as important as what you have told me to love you, to obey you. I can get on with those things and just have to trust you for the rest. Sometimes we can be paralyzed. What are we meant to do? But here, this is very liberating. God's told you what you need, He's revealed what you need. The rest is hidden. That's okay. That's okay. He's hidden and revealed. That's where God is hidden and yet revealed in His Word. Second little thing. Uh, he's up there and down here. So the bulk of the prayer, Solomon's main prayer then, is uh, 20, verses 23 to 53. Uh, this, this faithfulness of God is stressed. But let's look at these particular verses 27 to 28. Where is God? Verse 27. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven can, can, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? Okay, so where is God? Well, at least three things here. One, he's everywhere. Because he can't be contained. God is everywhere. And yes, the rest of the Bible concurs. God is everywhere. By his power, he's active everywhere. He moves all things, governs all things. In his knowledge, he sees all things. hears all things. In his being, He is present everywhere. God is everywhere. He cannot be contained. Yet secondly, the Bible will also... So he's everywhere. The Bible, secondly, will also speak often of God being in heaven. So if you hear on uh, Wednesday night, we looked at Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Often that is stressed. He's on his throne in heaven. Now the point there being, he rules... He's in a palace which you can't get to, and yet he's ruling over all things. That's helpful. It's helpful to know that. That's why it's so often stressed in the Psalms. Where is God? He's in his temple on his throne. He's ruling. He's in charge. He just occasionally in the UK in summer months um, when uh, Parliament's in recess and a crisis will blow up in the month of August. And someone will say, where is the Prime Minister? Oh, he's on holiday in Portugal with his family. Oh, disaster. He should be here. And there's a great deal of fuss. Where is the Prime Minister? Oh, he's in 10 Downing Street with the Cabinet. Good. Good. It's where he should be. There's a sort of sense of, not that, you know, not that he's omniscient, but there is a sense in which you want the bloke in charge to be ruling at that moment, not just on holiday somewhere. And that's the essence of God is in heaven on his throne. You just take confidence. He's in his palace. He's ruling, reigning. So where is God? He's everywhere. He's in heaven. But the the emphasis of chapter 8, he is also in his temple. And the temple which Solomon built is then, it's like a scale model of the heavenly throne room. And it was the place on earth where God dwelt intensely, where God dwelt because he promised to, 
dwell there covenantally. He'd committed to more than anywhere else. Dwell there, live there. There's a sense, this doesn't quite work, there's a sense in which it's a bit like an embassy. Say an embassy here in London. Uh, I have a friend who's a Norwegian. She works in the Norwegian embassy uh, just uh, over in um, uh, the square, just opposite. And uh, if you go there, it's a little Norway. It's a little bit like Norway. There are pictures everywhere of the king. Wonderfully Norwegian is Kong. You just think it's King Kong, but it's not. That's just their word for king. Always, always makes me laugh that. But there are pictures everywhere of the king. And, uh, you know, paintings of dramatic Norwegian scenes. There's often the, the sort of the fragrant smell of waffles because they cook waffles better than anyone else. It's a sort of national thing. Uh, on Norwegian National Day, if you ever see it, thousands of Norwegians in London will turn up at the embassy in their national dress. Have you ever seen it? It's terrific. It just, they all look like extras from The Sound of Music. It's wonderful. With their sort of, you know, anyway, I can't describe it. But there's a, it's a little bit of Norway here in London. The temple is a little bit like God's dwelling, is God's palace here on earth. The difference being he is in it because he's promised to dwell there intensely. So you, you've got to hold together the sense of the Lord is everywhere. Confidence that he's in heaven on his throne. And for these people then, that the temple was the place where you met him. He's all of those. Or in simple terms, 1 Kings 8 would want to stress that God is up there and exalted, but down here and he cares. You have to have both, and you've got to hold both together. That's still the case today. You've got to know that God is up there, but if you only stress that God is up there, he's sort of cold and remote and distant, and aloof. In some church traditions, God is mystery. He's just sort of up there and nothing else. But if you only conceive of God as down here, then he can be a bit weak. Or, you know, sort of Jesus is my mate. He's just down here, and there's no sense of reverence, or he's exalted. You've got to have both. When I was at Theological College, uh, a lovely couple there, uh, Tim and Joy Ayrton, um, in their late 40s at the time, and they adopted two boys, Matthew and Christopher, uh, 10 and 4. And uh, Christopher was very proud of his new daddy, and you'd overhear him uh, at dinner time, the, the kids used to come in, and you'd overhear him, my daddy's so, so skillful at football, he could play for England. You think, well, he might have been, but at 48, he's probably unlikely to. My daddy can run in the Olympics. Well, yes, very good, Christopher, you know, very good. Uh, but um, I remember on one occasion he ran up to me and grabbed me because he was, you know, was quite persistent with such things. My daddy's so strong he can lift a house above his head. Wow, he, he is strong, Christopher. Yes, he is. And do you know what? My daddy loves me. And he said, well, that's a very wonderful combination. And that is a wonderful combination, isn't it? How wonderful to know your father is so powerful. He can lift a house. And yet he loves you. You've got to hold together. God is up there and exalted and ruling over all things. But he's down here with us as well, amongst us, caring. You've got to hold those two together. Christianity, of course, manages that uniquely well. 
For Muslims, of course, it's an offence. God can be glorious and perfect, but he's aloof and distant. The idea of God coming down and contaminating himself with humans is anathema to a Muslim. Or in Sikhism, the gods are involved in this world, or Hinduism, the gods are involved in this world. They're constantly meddling, but they're fallible. They're not exalted and supremely different. But of course, for for the Christian, this is a combination which climaxes in the incarnation. Jesus Christ, where God the Son comes down from up there and dwells here. And that is extraordinary. When you read of Jesus in the New Testament, you've got to remember this is the one, the one that heavens cannot contain, chose to walk on this planet and make himself vulnerable. It's an extraordinary combination. He is both up there and down here. He's hidden and revealed. He's up there and down here at last. He's distant and in anger and yet close in mercy. So when you get into the prayer, really the prayer starts from verse 31 to the end of, the, uh, to the end of our reading today. 31 to 53, seven prayers, seven different petitions for the people. Solomon is praying for their future forgiveness which is very interesting. When we bog it, when we go wrong, when we sin and desperately need your mercy, and they vary these prayers, but what unites them is, when there is prayer to the temple, God, will you hear and act? Which is normally forgiveness. That's the dominant need, isn't it? Forgiveness. Verse 30, hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Over the page, verse 34, will you forgive? Verse 36, will you hear and forgive? Verse 39, will you hear and forgive? Verse 46, there's no one who doesn't sin. We need you to forgive. Verse 50, please forgive your people. No time to go to the detail, but all of these prayers and petitions, they're picking up on the language of Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, and indeed 30, where God set before the people a choice. If, they, if the people obeyed him, he would draw near and bless them with success in battle, with fertility, with good harvests. If they disobeyed him, he would withdraw and they'd be suffer the loss of all those things. They'd lose. Barren. No crops. It's spatial language that gets used. The longest prayer that is here in 1 Kings 8 is the last one, uh, verses 46 to 51. It predicts events that would happen 400 years later. When the people have disobeyed and when... Babylon has destroyed Israel, and when they've been taken off into Israel, 400 years later. So verse 46, when they sin against you, for there's no one who doesn't sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemy who takes them captive to his own land far away. When that happens. See, God is distant in anger from those who disobey him. He withdraws. Uh, Many moons ago, uh, at secondary school, when I was at secondary school, we had uh, a few decent sportsmen in my year. And uh, one year we got through to uh, the regional final uh, of the cricket final. 
uh, cricket tournament. The, the uh, matches had been played, and we'd got through to the final. And there were one or two of us in the team. I was, you know... Twelfth man, essentially, I did the drinks. I was incompetent, but uh, just about made the team. But uh, one or two were very good. But the uh, our behaviour went through a you know an adolescent phase, uh, and a sports coach said, "Listen, fellas, you three in particular, if you don't sort yourselves out, you are not coming to the final." And um, which is ridiculous. That the other two were very talented, kind of the heart of the team. Without them, we'd, we'd never win. I'm warning you. You disobey, you will not go. Yeah, we just didn't take him seriously. Then one day, mischief. Right, you three, you are not coming to the final. Well, come on, sir, seriously. You're not going to go without these two. None of you are coming. Oh, sorry, we, really are, we really are sorry. Too late. And so they drove off to the final. And the chance of a cup and a medal, Gone. It's my, my one and only chance of sporting glory. Verse 46, Solomon recognizes there is a problem here. There is no one who does not sin. No one. It wasn't just a problem for Israel then. This is a universal problem. Naturally, our behavior means we're shut out. God withdraws in anger from a human race who don't acknowledge him, who treat one another very, very badly. He withdraws. He's distant in anger, and yet, and yet he's close in mercy to those who call out to him. So verse 47, if they have a change of heart in the land when they're held captive, repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, We have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land. Verse 49, then from heaven. Hear. Verse 50, forgive. Oh, if there's genuine repentance, not just superficial, not just because there's consequences and you want to play. Genuine repentance. The Lord is merciful. So you see the picture it is of me at school and off they drive to the cup final. I'm left in Chelmsford, Essex, lamenting with my chums that we're going to miss out on uh, sporting glory. And then from, our, from my heart, I say, Mr. Brewington, Steve Brewington, he was a good man, Mr. Brewington, I am desperately, I see now not just the consequences of my mistake, I see how offensive my behavior is to you when you're such a good bloke and a great teacher. I've dishonored you, and I truly, truly, truly repent. And from a hundred miles away, he heard. Unlikely, I know. Run with it. He heard and called us back. That's what's being spoken of here. The Lord withdraws in anger, but in mercy, he draws near again to those who are genuinely repentant. They're to call to the temple. They're to pray to the temple because the temple is where sacrifices for sin are offered. Well, very interesting historically, of course. But for you and for me, Jesus Christ, you saw this last time, says, I'm the temple. Jesus says, I'm the place where sacrifices for sin are offered. I am the place where you can find forgiveness. 
And of course, it is at the cross where you see God both distant in anger and near in mercy. Because it is as Jesus hangs upon the cross with guilt and sin and shame of us upon him that the Father withdraws. And Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He withdraws in anger. And yet at that very moment, because of Jesus' death, that's how we can draw near in mercy. The cross is the place where there's anger and mercy and they meet wonderfully. And because of the cross, we can cry out in repentance, Father, forgive me. And he will say, because Jesus has died for you, I will. The cross is the place where God is both distant and close. So that now for you and for me, if we've trusted in that death of Jesus Christ, he's always close. Where is God? He's hidden and revealed. I will spend eternity understanding more of the mystery of who he is. But he's revealed what we need for life now. He's hidden and revealed. Where is God? He's up there and down here. He's reigning on high. It is always present with his people. Always. Always. Where is God? Distant in anger, close in mercy. But if we're trusting in Jesus Christ, that distance is gone forever. He is always close. So when your four-year-old, 14-year-old, 40-year-old says, where is God? Well, it's not a simple answer, but it is a wonderful one. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for for us living this side of the incarnation, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have such a, in one sense, clear answer to this. We know that you revealed all that we need for life in this world. We know that you are reigning on your throne, superintending everything in this creation. You are everywhere by your spirit, yet you're down here with us, intimately walking with your people in every circumstance of life. And Father, we thank you that even though you should be distant from us in anger, you're close to us in mercy because of the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you're no less majestic now than you were then. Your glory is no more diminished now than it was back then. But we can know we're near and you are with us because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen.